Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, episode 34, Exiling Ellen. Last time, we talked about how Ellen White, A.T. Jones, and E.J. Wagner went on their national tour, driving home the message of righteousness by faith. They went everywhere and fast, steamrolling opposition. We also talked a bit about Sunday Law, so what's new? I want to begin with Ellen White standing at a fork in the road. Metaphorically, of course, she had to make a choice between two options, the kind of choice we all make every day. But every once in a while, the choice we have to make can be a matter of life or death, like how Milton Hershey of the Hershey's Chocolate Empire never used his ticket to get on the Titanic, and you can add to that list J. Pierpont Morgan and one of the Vanderbilts, all famous examples of people who faced the ordinary choice that carried the invisible weight of life or death. While the young Vanderbilt, I should add, fortuitously didn't get on the Titanic, he did unfortunately get on the Lusitania three years later when the Germans sank her. Yikes. Anyway, Ellen had told both Pennsylvania and Iowa that she would attend their camp meetings in 1889 if she could. And as these things go... Both conferences booked their camp meetings for the same week, so she had to make a choice. After agonizing over it a little, she thought the leaders in Iowa were not nearly as eager to see her, and so she looked east to Pennsylvania. On May 30, 1889, Ellen White boarded a train in Battle Creek for Williamsport, a small town which was to be the scene of the camp meeting. Heavy rains slowed the train down dramatically. They arrived in Buffalo, New York, three hours late, and then they had to stay in Buffalo five more hours before they could finally board another train and reach Elmira, a town on the Pennsylvania border. Ellen White was told that going on to Williamsport would be impossible, but she pressed on. When the main track was washed out, they had to pull onto a sidetrack and spend Sabbath on the train. Finally, the track was repaired and the train carefully crept over the new rails. When they got about halfway to Williamsport, they were told they couldn't go on. It was there that they discovered that this was no ordinary storm. Ten people had been killed. One of them lay in his coffin, plucked from the river. Everyone from the train got back on and went back to the last town, except Ellen White. Well, they tried to go back. Turns out the track had washed out behind them again. Ellen White, the prophet of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, was trapped. Ellen White found an Adventist man in town, of course, who volunteered to take her in a carriage. The road was in terrible shape. Wreckage of bridges and barns were everywhere. Eventually, even the roads were wiped out. They had to take a mountain road, and anyone who has gone backpacking knows how rough those narrow paths can be during a huge storm. You never know when the path might give out and slide down the mountain. Ellen and her Adventists were intrepid, however. They had to replace the double tree, the part of a carriage which holds the horses together, with a branch. In one place, they had to cut up a fallen tree by hand and move it piece by piece. In another place, they couldn't move the tree, so they had to build a road around it. Just before nightfall, they found a tiny storm-beaten town. They were soaking wet and couldn't even start a fire because all the wood was wet. Everything was wet. Once again, they were told they couldn't go on. It was impossible. 
The best the people would do is give them a boat, but they'd have to leave their horses behind. So Ellen White said, let's build a raft. You ever wondered how Ellen White would deal with the river crossings in the old Oregon Trail game? Now you know. While the raft was being built, she surveyed the town. They had planted grain in a field, but the field was now covered in about three feet of sand. The raft they were building could carry the carriage across, but the horses had to swim. As they did so, waves occasionally covered the horse's head. And after a titanic struggle, no pun intended, both made it across. Ellen White said, quote, When the noble animal emerged from the river, I found myself praising God aloud and weeping like a child. There's no word on whether she felt the same way when the human beings made it across. They made it to Williamsport on Wednesday. They had been scheduled to arrive the last Friday. It was, after all, a routine 24-hour train ride. A 62-year-old woman had braved what turned out to be the worst disaster in American history to that point, the Johnstown Flood. It killed 2,200 people. It was almost as bad as Pearl Harbor. In Williamsport, Ellen White somehow found the energy to preach 13 times. E.J. Wagner weathered the storm in Williamsport. For Wagner, the Johnstown flood was part of a tough year. His dad, the old pioneer J.H. Wagner, had died in Europe the past April. Adventists everywhere grieved the loss. John Loughborough, still stationed as the California Conference president, called J.H. Wagner a veritable tower of strength. But this wasn't the end of E.J. Wagner's trials. In May, just before he set out for Williamsport, the grieving son became the grieving father, to use Woodrow Widden's apt phrase, when he learned that his nine-month-year-old son had died back in California. Wagner was a quiet type and had deep reserves of inner strength and faith. He didn't take a few months off to grieve. Instead, he joined A.T. Jones and Ellen White, and he continued preaching, writing, and apparently, taking a Hebrew distance learning class. If Wagner was having a tragic year out of 1889, then Jones was in his element in that year. Aside from being on Ellen White's Righteousness by Faith tour, it's a working title, he was the church's lead on religious liberty issues. We talked before about how he even appeared before Congress to campaign against Senator Blair's Sunday Bill. Well, in 1889, he became the head of the church's newly fashioned National Religious Liberty Association. From that perch, he picked a fight with Wilbur Crafts, a leader in the National Reform Association, which we just call the NRA. No, not the gun people. Definitely not the gun people. Wilbur Crafts' NRA was the powerful cultural creature lobbying for Blair's Sunday Law. The NRA had collected millions of signatures in support of Blair's bill, and Jones wanted to show that there were plenty of Americans against Blair's bill, and so Adventists picked up about 500,000 of their own signatures. Then the church's newspaper on religious liberty, the American Sentinel, run by Jones and Wagner, drove hard into Wilbur Kraft and his NRA. The tone was aggressive and biting, when Jones announced that he had recently published an expanded book of his testimony before Congress, he added a sort of endorsement from Wilbur Crafts, just to be cheeky. Maybe like Martin Luther putting an ad in the paper for his 95 theses and claiming that Pope Leo X endorsed them when he said Luther is from an illustrious German nation. 
I mean, it's true in all that Pope Leo X said that right before he excommunicated Luther for heresy. Jones, Wagner, and their American sentinel would go on to say Crafts was a liar who, quote, a liar the latter, though convicted repeatedly by the stern logic of facts, still persists in his evil ways, end quote. If it stopped there, it might be overlooked. Adventists keenly felt the pressure of what the NRA was doing. They were being harassed and sometimes arrested for doing nothing more than working on Sunday. But Jones's personality was a huge and often toxic element, too. For instance, as Crafts went around America to drum up support for the NRA, Jones would send copies of the American Sentinel ahead to wherever Crafts was supposed to speak. This didn't go unnoticed by the NRA or Wilbur Crafts, who declared that Adventists were, quote, a little insignificant set of hair-brained, woolly-headed fanatics, end quote. He accused Jones and Wagner of slandered and threatened to sue them. Kraft sent his remarks to John Harvey Kellogg, the Adventist medical leader, urging him to have the church discipline Jones and Wagner. The church did agree to have a hearing. Jones even personally invited Kraft to attend, but the church, of course, found nothing egregious in Jones and Wagner's behavior, though the General Conference did chastise them for the harsh personal attacks. Even Ellen White was telling them to chill. She said, We grieve the Lord by our harshness, by our unchristlike thrusts. In other words, life is hard enough, don't make it worse on us. But chill, Jones could not. He showed up at a pro Sunday law meeting one time to listen. Somebody hailed up a copy of his American Sentinel and began railing against Jones, having no idea he was sitting in the audience. The guy said, I wish this A.T. Jones were here so I could give him a piece of my mind or some such thing. Ha, ah, well, guess who raised his hand and asked to respond? You betcha. Jones was a flawed hero for Adventists. Certainly, they delighted in his bold and eloquent defense of religious liberty. It served him well when he stood before Senator Blair. It even got him an audience with the President of the United States. He was the cheeky underdog but some of the religious liberty ideas he was defending were really uniquely his own. He took strong, rigid stands on issues that the church had never decided. Should Adventists work on Sunday and break the law in an act of civil disobedience, or should they just keep their heads down and take Sunday off? The church wasn't sure, but Jones was. We might say that Jones exceeded his mandate. He was hired to cut down some dead branches off of a tree, but decided that while he was out there, he might as well just chop the whole tree down. And it was hard to rein Jones in. In 1892, the U.S. Supreme Court, in its famous Holy Trinity v. the United States, decided that America is a Christian nation. Jones ran with that, declaring that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. Revelation 13 described a union of church and state in the end, and this was it. Jones preached up a storm, stirring Adventists and moving the church's prophecy meter to DEFCON 3. The reactionary Uriah Smith, not exactly Jones's biggest fan to begin with, was not impressed. Smith was made to publish Jones's sermons in the review, fine, but Smith was going to do it on his own terms. So he included, alongside, his own article about how Jones was wrong. Politely, of course. Ellen White was annoyed and how the two men couldn't help but keep crashing into each other. But that's a story for another episode. That leads us to the 1889 General Conference. No doubt, 
There was a deep apprehension of whether or not it would be another Minneapolis round two. Except we wouldn't be going back to Minneapolis ever again. No, in 1889, we're going to stay safely in Battle Creek. The 1889 General Conference session is most remarkable in that the fight seemed to be over. Sure, there were a few holdouts of Minneapolis, but they appeared to be in the minority now, and they mostly kept quiet. It's amazing how things can change in one year, of course. Much of the credit goes to Ellen White's national tour featuring Jones and Wags, but she saw it as the work of the Holy Spirit. The major challenge to arise in the 1889 GC session was the idea of consolidating the various institutions of the church. There were now several publishing houses around the world, sanitariums or hospitals, and schools. And the idea was raised that maybe we need to bring all of that under one roof. We need to consolidate and coordinate better. This seemed like good business, and perhaps it was. But it wasn't good ministry, not in Ellen White's view. Ellen argued that by centralizing everything in, let's say, Battle Creek, individual initiative and responsibility would be squashed. The editors of the Pacific Press, Jones and Wagner, would become vanilla managers, taking orders from someone at headquarters who doesn't know what's going on in California. You would instantly transform the job requirements from someone who is creative and eloquent and a spiritual entrepreneur to someone who can just do what they're told. In other words, you'd have fewer leaders and more followers. Ellen brought up a much darker reason to oppose this plan, too. What happens when you give all of that power and influence into the hands of one man? The Adventist story thus far was full of defections and bad apples. One of those bad apples, D.M. Canwright, was even now shadowing Loughborough in California, itching for a public fight. Canwright had just published his book, Seventh-day Adventism Renounced, a broadside attack that the church wasn't yet prepared to defend against. What if someone like that were in charge of the church's publishing houses? Now, we've been focusing on some of the negative aspects of the 1888 crisis, the controversy between Jones, Wagner, Butler, and Smith, but this doesn't mean the church wasn't involved in a lot of good things. I mean, everywhere you looked on the map, just spin the globe around, the church was growing. We talked about how the missionary work to Europe happened largely by Providence. M.B. Tchaikovsky ran around preaching there without anyone in the church knowing what's going on. Well, the same was kind of true for the little island of Pitcairn. Are you sitting down? You should really be sitting down for this. It all began back in 1789 when the HMS Bounty sailed to get some breadfruit from the South Pacific. What is breadfruit, you ask? It's fruit that apparently tastes like bread. Delicious. Scientists today say it can go a long way to helping people in the tropics to have a balanced diet, blah, 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 blah. Why did the British want breadfruit? Were they interested in world hunger? Not so much. The British wanted breadfruit because it was a cheap way of feeding slaves in the Caribbean because, you know, life is all about finding out how to make free labor cheaper. Long story short, <clears throat> there was a wee bit of misunderstanding and the crew mutinied. They escaped to the island of Pitcairn because, wouldn't you know it, the captain survived, got another ship, and proceeded to hunt the mutineers down. Add a kraken and some tired jokes and you just found the next Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Turns out the captain didn't have to hunt the mutineers down because they did a great job of murdering each other. 
Eventually, only one crewman was left, and he told the natives who they had gathered that it was time to start reading the Bible and ending the chaos. So when James White and John Loughborough heard this story in 1876, they sent a crate of tracts for the survivors to read. Then, boom, next thing we know, 106 islanders don't smoke, don't eat meat, and don't drink. Even the Encyclopedia Britannica noticed the change in lifestyle. So, you know what had to be done? Someone would have to go over there and visit them. I volunteer. So John Tay was actually the one sent to Pitcairn. Tay was a veteran sailor, and besides, he was told it would be good for his health. So he stayed five weeks and basically converted the entire island. But Tay wasn't a pastor, so he didn't feel that he should baptize them. So the church in 1887 sent a pastor from Nebraska, one A.J. Cudney, to baptize and teach the inhabitants. Cudney first sailed for Hawaii, where he organized the first Adventist church there too. Yay! Except no one knew about that because of what's about to happen. Boo! The church bought a boat for $2,000, which they called the Phoebe Chapman, apparently so named after a member in Oakland. The story goes that a man who wanted to win Miss Chapman's affections boasted that he just named a ship after her. So take that, you guys who name stars after your wives. You've got nothing on this dude. Phoebe Chapman tossed her hair and laughed at her suitor, telling him she hoped it would sink. Yeah about that. Let's just say sometimes you wish you could take your words back. And this was no exception. Phoebe Chapman went her whole life never talking about the ship named after her again. So let this be a lesson to you young suitors. It is really cool if you want to name a ship after a girl you're interested in, but not if it sinks killing everyone on board. We have no idea what happened to the Phoebe Chapman, we just know it started in Hawaii and then never got to where it was going. And neither did the church back in America. They had no idea what happened to it. You can read these notes in the review growing more and more desperate and sad as they wondered what happened to their ship and what happened to their crew. It's the South Pacific. Maybe he got shipwrecked somewhere. Maybe he's just really bad at communicating. Maybe the mail ship sunk. Could be anything, right? But at last, they accepted the inevitable and sent the captain's pay to his widow in a sign of support. But the church wasn't done with the dear islanders in Pitcairn. So the church built a new ship from scratch. Then they wouldn't let the shipbuilders work on Sabbath, and they refused to break a bottle of alcohol on it when it was done. It was built by Sabbath school offerings and named in a contest. The winning name? Better sit down. The Pitcairn. We are done naming ships after women. So original, guys, so original. The whole thing was just kind of exotic. I mean, the church had never built a ship before. People wrote poems about the ship, and they sang songs about the ship, and it sat out in 1890, and the missionaries on board baptized the patient people of Pitcairn. And while we're on the subject of ocean voyages, I might as well bring this up. Namely, the decision by the Foreign Mission Board of 1891 to invite Ellen White to go to Australia. Oh man, that's super fantastic. I can't wait to go to Australia, Ellen White did not say. Ellen White wanted to stay in her new home on Lake Michigan. She wanted to write, take long walks on the beach, skip rocks across the water, that sort of thing. Well, as she and Willie were riding one day in a carriage, the wheel broke, 
launching them all out onto the ground. No one was hurt, thankfully, but it made Ellen White a little bit sad that an Adventist had built that wheel. She looked at the broken wheel more carefully and called it a complete fraud. And an Adventist should never be guilty of such poor craftsmanship. So I don't know who that Adventist guy was who made the wheel and Ellen White's carriage, but you just almost killed the prophet of your church. Ellen White agonized over the Australia decision. She didn't feel God was telling her to go one way or the other, which is always kind of frustrating. What she had was an official invitation by the General Conference, and so she accepted. Her policy was to say yes to the church unless God had told her something different. God hadn't, and so she went. This episode is called Exiling Ellen, and while she technically was not exiled, the invitation had the effect of sidelining her. She would struggle over the next nine years to exert the kind of influence she felt went with being a prophet. And she'd have to do it an ocean away. Her presence had been absolutely essential in preventing the 1888 controversy from rupturing the church. So whatever problems lay in store throughout the 1890s, Ellen White wouldn't be around to help much, which just makes us wonder, what's going to happen next? Ah, you thought that was the cliffhanger, didn't you? Ha! I'm actually going to close this with a report from the 1889 General Conference, talking about a new mission field that's finally opening up. It wasn't in Asia or India or Africa. This mission field was in the United States, the southern United States. R.M. Kilgore basically stood up at the General Conference and said, Look, we're making some progress down there, but you guys in the north and you guys in the west have no idea what it's like to work in the south. He was talking about a council of some of the workers in the South when he told the General Conference, quote, Many important questions were considered during the council, among which the race question was probably the most serious and perplexing. It is hard for our brethren in the North to realize that anything like the color line or a distinction between the two races should exist in the minds of any, but there is no question about it here in the South. And any effort made on the part of those from the North to break down the distinction between the races, thus ignoring popular prejudice, is simply fanatical and unwise. Those who have not labored in the South cannot possibly appreciate the situation. It is not only a difficult problem to solve among our white brethren, but the perplexity and embarrassment of the situation are realized as fully by the colored people. We are glad, however, to note this fact that with those who have received the truth in the love of it, and know the power of the truth in their own hearts as it is in Jesus Christ, the prejudice that once existed are gone, and were it not for the feeling on the part of those from without, there would be no trouble on. End quote. It seems the solution to all the problems in mission fields these days involves a boat. Hey, maybe that'll work in the South, too. Now there's your cliffhanger. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. 
Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>